0: What do you want?
1: To a podcast to you. <laughs> Gonna talk about giallo movies just for you.
0: The only thing I'd like, I'd really like, is to meet you face to face.
1: It'll happen sooner or later, but you don't have to recognize us.
0: Thanks. However, you disappoint me, duck. You throw a challenge my
1: way. I almost forgot the most important part. We go by Creep Creeperson and Chris. And this is Chow Chow Chow. Got it. The harbor, a phone booth sitting right near Pier 11. I'll get out the APB. Move, you bastard. <laughs>
2: Chow chow, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to episode 57 of Jallo Chow Chow, the all Jallo podcast. My name is Chris. I run a website called jalloscore.com. And normally, all of this intro fanfare is reserved for my good buddy, Creep Creeperson. However, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Creep Creeperson is not available this evening. He has been in the process of moving his entire existence in a physical way from one location to another and is still not available to participate. So uh, in his absence, I'd like to introduce our guest. It is Jason, who is a huge contributor to our group and uh, always contributes live and throws interesting questions our way, also provides us with lots of background information when we get stuck on something. Jason, say hello. How are you tonight?
0: Uh, Hello, everybody. Here I am, uh, fulfilling the overweight bearded guy with delusions of grandeur quotient for the show.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, my my chin hair is growing and so is my stomach, so we're fighting all for that same uh, slot. These days, between the three of us. Um, But glad to have you. And um, it's really great that we were able to get this uh, together because uh, I know it's been a while since we've done a podcast. And I know that the fans are clamoring uh, for some new material. And uh, just to give a quick history, uh, we had planned, I think a week ago and maybe a week before that, based on schedules, to do a double feature of. Um, Rogero De Donato's uh, The Washing Machine, which is a giallo from the 90s, which is very strange and odd and weird and and trashy. Um, And Jason had the cool idea to couple that along with My Bloody Valentine, which is an 80s slasher, but has a lot of giallo elements and, of course, uh, has a scene where a body is found in a washing machine. And so the correlation... Uh, Was then set up and a a great idea for a double feature podcast was born. However um, After watching the washing machine and realizing how absolutely trashy it is I didn't think that we could have the discussion without creep Uh, So we put it on hold and then decided hey, let's go back in and let's do something else instead um, So that we can kind of keep the podcast going
0: yeah, it's been a little while since the last show, so it definitely makes sense to do something in between. And you're right, Creep has got to comment on the washing machine, because it's, I think, I'm not going to say it's just a piece of uh, trashy schlock, but it is definitely more in the vein of script nude for your killer than, say, pretty
2: much anything that people take seriously. <laughs> right exactly i kind of likened it to a cross between it, it really has a uh an a, an argento look uh like a 90s argento look and feel like opera um it reminds me a little bit of lamberto baba and the, the look that he got for his demons movies but it's also very much reminiscent of sister of ursula and some of this other crazy crazy trashy stuff that uh creep just can't get enough of so um, we'll keep that on hold for him and um, we'll we'll keep the fires burning for the washing machine and in hopes that creep will make his triumphant return either next week or the week after so in place of that we're gonna cover a film called um, the killer reserved nine seats Um, but before we get into the feature for today I have a little bit of um, well Jason do you want to give us a little bit of background on yourself and and how you've come to be part of this crazy um, gathering of of Giallo fans on the internet?
0: Let's see how to explain that. Um, Well, for one thing, I actually was not one one of those people who watched a lot of horror movies when I was younger, the more modern ones. Um, Of course, to put things in perspective, that would be modern as in 90s, Early two thousands, I ended up. Ke- I'm catching up on a lot of those now, but I mostly got started with horror and mysteries based on the older stuff, and in particular, a lot of the stuff that would show up on PBS for murder mysteries. And it was always easier to sell my parents on letting me rent a murder mystery than it was a horror movie. So that actually got me a lot of leeway with some of these films. <laughs> Especially since my dad also happened to like some of them. And I actually... Eyeball holds a special place in my heart because I think... I can't be 100% certain, but I swear to God, we borrowed that from the library of all places at one point in time. Uh, uh, uh. I actually... I remember that Red Rain Poncho's everywhere.
2: Wow. Now, was (laughs) was that like a VHS copy? Yeah,
0: that was a VHS copy way back when. Wow. So that would have been ages and ages ago, but uh, since then I've been catching up on some of the required viewing in the genre, but mostly I've been picking up films here and there as I've been able to come across them, and one of the things that I like is the fact that unlike a lot of the horror movies that would come out even around the same time, the Jolly have They're made by people who they might have been making schlock for people to watch in a third-run cinema, but I think that there is a lot more artistic intent behind that because while they may have been making something to toss out in a third-run cinema for people, I find that there's a lot of camera work that they experiment with and a lot of effort to try and make something that if you want to watch it, you can put a lot of thought and effort into it because these were the people who wanted to go out and be the next Fellini, the next Leone, or whoever, and they just weren't there yet, and they were really hoping that somebody would catch these third-run, third-rate films they were making and boost them up. Of course, Bava and Argento, Martino, kind of belie that fact a little bit, but lens i mean you know Lenzi wanted to be the next fellini he just never quite got the chance <laughs> um on the other hand if you ask him he probably invented fellini so there you go
2: right <laughs> exactly but uh,
0: uh, and he invented three or four other genres on the way to trying to be him yep. so you gotta look at that and you gotta think that sometimes there is something behind them and as for how i got into the internet community um, I actually bounced over here from Mike Cadet, over at the Cadaver Lab when he promoted the show a little bit. I came over here from there, and uh, if anyone recognizes my voice, I am the I used to call into there more often as uh, the Wolfman, or occasionally I would be holding the bottle of bourbon that would be allowing folks to commune with the Reverend Wolf E. Man, and... Uh, <laughs> some folks have enjoyed the reverend sermons that show up on there but uh, so I'm over here and normally contributing a little more quietly or as I put it the other episode uh, don't think of me as quality control think of me as a know-it-all with no filter (laughs) I have very eclectic tastes and that means that when I'm watching these films sometimes this will actually come up later tonight I'll spot something in the background and be like, "Wait a second, is that in, is that in Aramaic? What the heck does that say? I have no idea." <laughs> but I will wonder why they put something on the wall in Aramaic, and right. then my brain will go off and start forming this entirely different film than what I'm watching, but that is probably an entirely different reading than the director intended. But it's interesting to think about.
2: <laughs> yes, I agree, and I really like, um, I really like the point that you bring up with. Um, the multi-dimensional aspects of these films, um, and how, you know, from a practical standpoint, from the time when they were when they were put out, they probably were kind of um, auditions um, for these directors to see if they could break into something larger. Um, but looking at them, you know, fifty years later, it's um, really fun to to look in and see that, like you said, they were really doing some experimentation. Um, they were trying, you know, clearly, you know, there wasn't a lot of effort to um, boost the level of acting quality uh, because they knew that these, I guess that these were international um, things that needed to be quickly produced and and put out in third rate cinemas where people weren't gonna be paying attention to that academic sort of aspects of filmmaking. Um, but they, they did as much as they could from a production standpoint to make things interesting. And, and certainly you can say that for the, the the scoring and the composing of soundtracks for these things, uh, because for, for my money, um, these films have the most varied and interesting music that go behind them more than any other um, film genre that I know of. I mean, clearly, you know, if you start talking about the... The films that Morricone scored for, you move out of the giallo genre and you get into so many other different things. But um, these these films have consistently uh, proven themselves to be interesting from a from a musical standpoint, and their soundtracks um, really stand alone. Um, for the most part, unless, you know, you're talking about a soundtrack where it's just mood and ambient music, you might not be able to listen to it over and over again, but a soundtrack like, um, the one for tonight's film is actually really good. It has a lot of good, interesting thematic, uh, things going on, or let's say, um, say the soundtrack for, uh, Forbidden Photos which is just one of my favorite Morricone soundtracks mm-hmm. is really good to listen to. And, um, I recently spent some time with the Tenebrae soundtrack, um, which is a good segue into the next thing I wanted to bring up. But um, the Tenebrae soundtrack, I never really paid attention to it outside of the film. Um, You know, the main theme of the Tenebrae film um, is it was a very familiar theme, Um, and some of the other main themes, uh, like the 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 scene where um, the one girl is being chased through the 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 killer's house. And that sort of thing; um, those are very familiar themes, but they kind of are. They're kind of secondary to what's going on visually on the screen. So when I took some time to listen to the soundtrack, which is just three of the four members from Goblin, there is a, a, a so multi-layered amount of electronic music that they programmed for this, um, for Tenebrae, and I mean programming in you know, the early 80s was a lot of manual work, you know, they didn't have a lot of computers and sequencers to do the things that they can do now, and uh, that soundtrack is really, really well written as far as, um, you know, the different parts, uh, you know, the keyboard, I mean, I think that two of the guys, uh, I think like Simonetti um, did all of the synths and programming and and loops and tapes and stuff, and then the other two guys did um, bass and drums, or bass and guitar, or or basing, well, the two two like analog instruments, but um, there is a lot going on in that soundtrack. And if you take an opportunity to listen to it without the film, you'll notice um, how these themes just kind of uh, layer on top of each other to create these really interesting tapestries of sound, or is it tapestries, one way or the other. Yeah think it's tapestry, but whichever. And you really do get the opportunity to do that with the
0: CD that came with the uh, steelbook that came out. And that is, I'm really glad that I pre-ordered that when it came out, because that is a great soundtrack to have. And actually, it's one of the first soundtracks I've managed to get for one of these things where it's in, I actually have the soundtrack for the film instead of a track here, a track there, a track somewhere else.
2: (laughs) Right. But, uh, That's nice. It's really nice package yeah. that that uh, and it's a synapse thing, I think, right? Yeah, it's the
0: synapse steelbook box. Yep. and uh, like you and I mean part of it is the people that you get where you have folks like Morricone, Nikolai, and uh, to I mean to a lesser extent you have uh, Stivoletto Cipriani, but uh, and like you pointed out, then you have somebody who I don't remember hearing of that much, like tonight's composer and one of the things that you do pick up is that even people who are working with a sound-alike studio collective like cam you have people who are putting the effort into making the score fit the film and they might be trying to imitate some of the morricone sound on the cheap but they're not just taking morricone stuff changing two or three notes so they won't get sued and tossing it in like you'll have with some of the folks who in Hollywood have sound-alikes of brick house that they put out for somebody to do as their uh, intro to a show or something. Right. I totally don't know people who use that as sound-alike for their podcast intro. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not you guys either,
1: no. obviously. Nope. You have much uh, better taste. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Interesting. So... Um... Okay, so that kind of leads us to uh, just some, some housekeeping and some news for the podcast. Um, just wanted to let everybody know that I've gotten word that the uh, Giallo uh, playing cards, um, and now, unfortunately, I need to on the fly look up uh, the name of the website. Oh, it's cultzilla.co.uk, the Giallo deck. Um, those cards, I've been informed, have been printed and have been shipped. So I ordered, I think, four of them. That piece is
0: Sure, I think, yeah.
2: Yep, and we'll be giving them away uh, as soon as I get them. I'm not exactly sure how we'll be giving them away. If you have to do something or if you just need to be lucky enough to pick the right number that I'm thinking of from 1 to 10, I don't know. We'll we'll think of that um offline. But that's coming up soon. Um, I also wanted to mention that I have a new blog that's completely unrelated to Giallo. Uh, It is called Three Albums a Week. And I'm just going to give a quick plug to my new blog because I'd like to get some people checking it out. Um, it is, let's see, I don't even know the address of my own site. It is threealbumsaweek.wordpress.com So, and it's the num—it's the the letters that make up the number three. So it's T H R E E albums a week. dot wordpress. dot com. And I got the idea uh, for putting this blog out about uh, a month and a half ago when I was just so stagnant with the things that I was listening to um, on my phone. I I have a a ton of music uh, in the cloud, and my phone can really only hold uh, so much. And so in the old days when I had an iPod and just about everything I ever owned was on it, um, I could just grab something at random at any point. Um, With my phone now having a limited amount of space, uh, I have to kind of preemptively decide what I want to listen to. So I decided that um, once a week I would go into my uh, iTunes and I would say, okay, out of the 10,000 or so songs I have in here, um, start playing them at random, and the first three that would that uh, iTunes would pick, I would grab the album for that particular song and listen to those three albums for a week, and then blog about it. So um, so far, it's been a really interesting um, experiment because it picks things that I probably never would go to consciously and listen to, even though uh, it's music that I've picked or that I've been listening to for. while or maybe some stuff that you know i downloaded or got a copy of and never listened to but just threw it in my library um and uh so i'm gonna try to keep up with that and i the reason i bring that tenebrae up is because um that was one of the um one of the albums that i listened to a couple weeks ago i also listened to the um the fan created soundtrack of orgasmo the umberto lenzi film with um uh, with What's-Her-Face, the blonde girl. Um, Carol Baker? Yeah, Carol Baker. Um, so, and besides that, you know, I, I have a lot of rock and metal um, and jazz in my collection, so a lot of that keeps popping up. Beatles, um, John Coltrane, um, and uh, it's occasionally, um, the occasional, like, uh, death metal band, like Lamb of God or... Um, what have you. Um, but uh, I recently um, decided to spend the week with the new Radiohead album instead of um, doing three. So the latest podcast is on that instead of um, a three at random because I was uh, very excited for that album to come out. So anyway, enough with the plugs on that. If you guys get a chance or feel like stopping by, it's three albums a week at the WordPress blog site. Um, <clears throat> That's that. Uh, I did manage to do some updating to my website uh, in time for today's uh, podcast. I do still need to get um, Blue Eyes for a Broken Doll on the Jalo score. That one, I've just kind of slipped through my fingers uh, after we covered it a few weeks ago. But I wanted to bring an email and read it to you it's from simon james constable who uh is a regular contributor on our group site on facebook and he writes to talk about some of the things um, that he would like to see either discussed or changed in the way that the Jalo score handles scoring so i'll bring this um up for some discussion jason if you don't mind uh taking oh, the time right to ahead. talk about <laughs> this um so first and foremost Um, Simon says, I really think the director greater than one criteria should be scrapped as it gives points to a film for other films the director has made when surely the giallo score is to show how how giallo each film is and they should be scored on their own merits rather than the merits of the other films in the director's filmography. Um, So let me address that one. I think that's a good point but I think it's important maybe I don't know if Simon understands this or, or maybe I'm just assuming that he doesn't, but um, the idea is that the director has created some other giallo, not just something else. So um, if we're talking about this particular film, for example, uh, the director is, um, what are we talking about here? Giuseppe Bonatti, who has a few other films under his belt, but none of them are Jolly. Um so he would not get points on the Jalo score for having uh, been a director of more than one so I didn't know um, Simon if that was what you were if you understood that that's how it was working or if you just uh, if you did figure that out and still real or still f- thought that um, we shouldn't give points to a film where the director did some work on some other films um, I personally think that um, it has some merit Um simply because um, the director is contributing to the overall movement of the genre uh, or the subgenre. But um, perhaps it's weighted too heavily. Um, it gives uh, Argento and Martino and Fulci and Lindsay certainly extra points um, for stuff that doesn't really apply to the film at hand, which is a good point that Simon makes. So. What do you think about that?
0: Um, Uh, Well, I do think that there is value to it. I'm not, I mean, it's only, is that a five-pointer or is that a four-pointer? I think it's a
2: a five-pointer.
0: Yeah. um, What I'm kind of thinking is a question of what you're using the score for, I suppose, because if you're using it to weight, I mean, obviously... I don't know that we necessarily want the Jalo score to be a measure of quality for a given movie because otherwise you have some films that aren't as good as say a Blood and Black Lace or a The Bat that don't that rate much higher than those films happen to. Right. And uh and yes, I was plugging the one that I threw you guys in the deep <laughs> end on there. But, <laughs> uh, but so, and you get some films that don't score as highly. So it's not necessarily an individual film's quality that's being measured. But if you're using it to get a feel for what is a good film that you could show somebody to give them an idea of what's this all about. You show somebody a The Girl Who Knew Too Much or Blood and Black Lace, and those are iconic films that help to shape the entire subgenre, but they're not necessarily what you want to give somebody so that they'll know if they really like Jolly. By contrast, a deep red. Uh, what have you done to Solange, those are more that type of film, and by giving points to a director who's done more than one in the genre, you weight a bit more towards the directors who aren't just influential in the genre, but where somebody's more likely to watch a film, if they're just going down the list, from somebody who they'll be seeing their directing style again, as opposed to a one and done. Right. Yeah, I think so it's... I think that that does give merit to having some points on it, whether or not it's a full five. That's I mean that's tweaking right. more than major change. But the other question, of course, is without if you didn't give that five points, where would the other points go? So it still adds up to a hundred.
2: Right. Well, then we can we can move on to um, we can move on to the next question. Or the next comment from Simon which says, I also recommend increasing the amount of points given for Morricone or Nicolai And I would keep the points the same for Ortolani as they currently are, but then I would add uh, uh, Stelvio, Cipriani um, So high points for Morricone and Nicolai and low points for Ortolani and Cipriani Um, I'd also increase the points, and here's maybe where, you know, the tweaking could come in handy. Um, I'd also increase points for an urban location, as I feel that when they are set rurally or in another country, it makes them atypical and instantly less giallo-like. So the points should reflect that more and reward films for the urban location, um, for example, Don't Torture a Duckling scores higher than Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which doesn't ring true to me when we're talking about that giallo feel. And I think that's a good point. Um, maybe the simple answer is that we switch the director and the urban location um, so that basically, um, urban. well, urban location is currently getting four points where a director uh, is credited with at least one more jalo, as getting five. So it wouldn't really be that big of a change. Um, but I think I understand um, the comment. I think that, um, you know, we've talked in, in a couple of episodes of this podcast about the different flavors of jali and uh, how some of them are kind of, you know, out in the country, or like the film tonight, it's it's not really urban, it's not really rural, but it's a singular location where all of the action happens in one place, and there's no driving around, and there's no city streets and people walking, and you know it, it's not necessarily fair to the genre or this this particular um, grouping of of characteristics for films to just say that. Um, if you have a film that occurs in an urban environment, that that's more of a classic, um, uh, more of a, a of a classic incarnation of the of the genre. But um, in most cases, it, it, cases it is. I think that the 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 specific um, example of um, "Don't Torture a Duckling" is really an exception because "Don't Torture" definitely is. Uh, as urban as you can get, um, however, it does so many other things that are classic um, in, in, in in its rural environment, I mean, if you look at the Jalo score, um, it got perfect amount of points in everything but, um, in everything but two places, and um, one of them being the four points that it lost for being in a rural environment, which would have put it up to 96 points instead of 92. Um, but everything else um, kind of hits home. And again, you know, we're talking, we're, we're, I'm kind of a judge and jury here because I invented the criteria and now I'm discussing why it is or isn't correct. Um, but I don't know, what do you think about the urban Landscape as part of the the characteristics of the film of
1: the genre. I could,
0: I could see swapping that with the director criteria. That part makes sense, but I'm a little biased here because that, I mean, like I pointed out, one of my first jolly, I believe, was Eyeball, which is definitely not in what most people would call an urban film. <laughs> so, um, but I would say that I could see swapping the two, but I wouldn't take out the. Uh, director criteria in order to do that. Um, I do want to step back for a moment to the bit about the composers. I don't know that we want to go through. If we put all the composers who are at a certain level at that one level, that's one thing, but I don't know how it would be for you to start making multiple tiers of directors and then have to deal with the heat from people who think that this is or not directors, sorry, composers who think that this composer should be at this person's level, this one should be at that person's level, Uh, should Cam, I mean, from sheer quantity, should Cam be on the level at all, that sort of thing. That would just be a pain to start working with, but uh, plus again, little bias showing through here maybe. I don't necessarily think that uh, Ortolani's scores deserve to be on a lower level than the scores of uh Mor Morricone, but um I mean just from sheer quantity, yeah, Morricone had more. And if you want to look at his best works, his best works are probably better than anything that Ortolani tried to get out there. Right. But as composers I would say that
2: they're still fair to put on a similar level. Um, yeah, I think it's a good point. I, I mean, you know, if this was if this was a a a survey of the music that's being used in Italian film, then you could start to get into well, how do we weight these things differently depending on who they are? But I think that originally, when I was doing the criteria for the the site, I said, well, look, Ennio Morricone has done probably the most scores for these films, so let's give him some points. And then mm-hmm. as I started going through and doing the research, I said, well, this Bruno Nicolai is kind of pretty much uh, almost as prevalent as Morricone, and so I left it at those two. Um, but but as I continue to watch more and more of these films, you can see that Riz uh, does have a lot um, going on with these. So it's kind of like a slippery slope where we start adding more and more composers. Um, I think initially the idea was that um, that familiarity uh, is 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 what gets you the points. So when you think of the soundtrack that goes along with a Jalo film, probably the first one that comes to mind is Morcone. If you've got some experience with these films, um, there could be a case made um, to put Goblin in this list. But then again, they really didn't come onto the scene until after the heyday. Uh, or the what you know we do call the classic period between 71 and, and 74 um, so you know there, there's an argument to be made there too so um, but you know and and just quickly I kind of feel like eyeball is an urban um, to the extent where I mean it's not Italian but um, and you can make the argument that that don't torture a duckling is urban too because i mean at, at some point um some of the action is taking place in this village which is clearly a lot of people living in a small confined space which is kind of the definition of urban living um even though it's not the modern and maybe that's the word we're looking for instead of urban but the modern by 1970s definition of modern urban um You know, when they go to Spain for eyeball, there's lots of places where they're out and in the touristy areas, which is kind of in and around the urban environment too. So, um, all of these are open for interpretation, obviously. True. Um, But um, yeah, I I will. I will definitely kind of think about switching the director and the uh, the urban thing. Uh, I'll think about that a little bit more because it's a. It's it might be a um, something that makes me feel like the the scoring is a little bit more authentic to what the giallo is really like um and, you know we can probably move other it's possible to move other points around too in the first and second sections of of the criteria um but you know it's it, and it's it's easy enough to go through it and, and uh, re- recalculate the points for all the films that have been scored already so um I'll think about that, but I, I really wanted to um, say thanks to uh, Simon, who um, who sent that email and um, gave me a little bit of flack on the website for or on the um, on the Facebook group because I hadn't responded. Um, really, I I had been waiting after I got his email to address it on the uh, this podcast. So I thought that would be more authentic and effective. And I, I do think it's uh, in just. Uh, Since you can't say this
0: because it's your site, I'm going to say it. I think it's cool that you've designed something like this where you have people interested enough in these what used to be third-rate, third-run theater films, and they're interested enough in those films and in how you're looking at them that they're willing to argue points with you. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And I think that was one of the things I had hoped would happen if people got wind of this website because it's um when i first developed the idea for this website i said i really need a gimmick because there's a million websites that talk about italian horror films and why is my site going to be any different and so i came up with this idea and um you know as luck would have it creep and eric at the time had started the podcast and found my site and, and uh Made a couple of mentions about it, and the rest is really history, as they say. So
0: yeah, it is. Uh, but I mean, if you want to ch- swap the urban and directors around, I'm not going to complain because I mean that actually makes the outline for the book I'm working on a- score a little bit higher on there. So I'll be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a repeat offender bonus.
2: <laughs> there you go. Well, let's uh, let, let's let's we'll, I'll table that. That's it to use my corporate speak, and. Um, get back to you guys next time and see what I've thought about it. So, all right. So that is, I think everything I have as far as um, housekeeping and uh, we've been going quite a while. We haven't even talked about the, the, the film yet. Um, So I guess, and unless um, Jason, you have anything else you wanted to contribute at this point, I think we should jump into our feature presentation. Oh, I see. That's a good idea. All right. Um, So tonight we're doing a film called The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, and it is a giallo that was uh, released in 1974 by uh, Giuseppe Benatti, and um, it's a really interesting film. What I want to do first is I want to play a soundbite from our good buddy, uh, Richard Glenn Schmidt, the author of Giallo Meltdown, A Movie-Thon History. Oh, sorry. A movie on diary. Sorry.
1: Ciao, ciao, giallo, ciao, ciao. This is Richard of Hello, This is the Doomed Show. I heard you guys were talking about the killer has reserved nine seats. And since I will likely be in bed by the time you guys are recording, because I'm a cool guy, I thought I would call in and leave a little message for you with my thoughts on the film. I love The Killer Has Reserved Nine Seats. Uh This film is just really dreamlike and strange. It's got sleaziness. It's got the ugliest mask I've ever seen on a giallo killer. It's got weird supernatural tones that I was not expecting the first time I saw it. It's got some cool people in it, like Janet Ogren, Howard Ross, and the lovely Paola Senatore, who's Ooh, very sexy in this movie. This film reminds me of something I would have seen on TV when I was a kid. Of course, the nudity would have been all cut out. I think this would make a great double feature with uh, Seven Deaths and The Cat's Eye. I think those are kind of fun films that might complement each other. Um, I liked this movie a lot my first viewing. Like, I really liked it a lot. But then the second viewing, by the time I you know gave it another chance. I loved it. I just fell in love with this movie. Now it's kind of one of my new favorites. You can read about my first viewing of this film in Giallo Meltdown, a movie thon Diary, available now at Amazon. Is anyone surprised that I'm plugging my book? Anyway, gang, keep up the great work. I love that you guys are a freaking all Giallo podcast. Don't ever stop. Keep on keepin on. Bye for now.
2: All right. Well, I want to thank uh, Richard for sending that in. That was really cool. Um, and yes, um, as many plugs as possible for his book. I'm holding it up again. Jalo Meltdown, a movie-thon diary. Uh, it's a really cool take on watching these films. So um, instead of the typical survey of the Jalo films that you would um, that you would get either originally from the Blood and Black Lace book that was put out, Uh, Back in the '90s, by Adrian Luther Smith, to be uh, replaced in it recently by Troy Haworths. Haworths. I always don't know how to say his last name. So deadly, I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, He put out two books: "So Deadly, So Perverse," uh, volumes one and two. Um, Those are kind of like the Jalo Bibles at this point for looking up a film, um, finding out information about it, and getting some. Getting, basically, Troy does a really good job of taking the films, um, cross-referencing them with the other films that the director, the composer, the actors, and the writers have been re- uh, responsible for, um, for putting out. And uh, a little bit of a synopsis, a little bit of a um, review, no spoilers, of course. Uh, meanwhile, Richard's book is a little bit more of a stream of consciousness uh, kind of book where he would sit down and watch um, three or four Jolly in a day and take some notes. And um, every time he did this, he would blog about it. And I guess it got to the point where he had so much material that there was enough to put a book out. So here it is. And um, I recommend it to everybody go out and get it. Um, So thanks again for that, Richard. So and um I have it on my Kindle now and it's going to it's in my to read
0: queue unfortunately so are about a half dozen other things, but it's towards the top of it. I promise.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and um I have that same problem. Just things just constantly lined up to uh I have that problem with with films uh more than books. Um <laughs> but at, at any rate, um yeah, there's no there's no shortage of things to entertain yourself with these days more than Uh, enough media to consume (laughs) yeah absolutely so uh this film um i i you know i we typically creep and i typically wait until the end of describing the film to give our impressions or our opinions um but i'm pretty much in the same camp as uh, richard here i thought it was a a really fun film to watch um but for those of you and again, we we always have this issue where we're not sure if the people listening have or have not watched the film. Um, but a little bit of background: um, the film um, really is what I would consider to be a little bit of a hybrid between gothic horror and Jalo. Um, it stars a lot of people. Uh, you know, basically, the idea here is the killer reserved nine seats, so we have ten characters. Um, and they all basically start out the beginning of the movie um, driving up to this deserted um, theater, which has been kept in pristine condition but locked up. And no one really explains why they're going up there. It sounds like somebody was at a party and decided, hey, wouldn't it be a a, a gas uh, for us to just split and, and drive up to this uh, old theater that Patrick owns and hang out there um so that's really what happens at the beginning of the film you have all these characters they come up to this abandoned um theater to hang out um so the film um stars a whole bunch of people um the characters basically surround this one guy whose name is patrick uh i think it's how you pronounce it Uh, He owns the theater. He's the heir to the family estate. He owns everything. Um, We've seen him before in Bay of Blood. He was Frank, uh, and I think he was also a a professor in the So Sweet, So Dead film. Um, He showed up, and I I won't give away anything about either of those two if you haven't seen it. Um, But other people that I've noticed in this film that I've seen before, um, the character of Russell um who is the lover of patrick's fiance who's like so patrick's fiance's name is kim and she's cheating on her fiance with this guy russell and he was in five dollars for an august moon and he was also the two-fingered killer from new york ripper uh the mickey scalenda character um besides those two we have two girls or two women uh, who are both in Umberto Lenze's Eaten Alive, or Eaten Alive by the Cannibals, um, Lynn, who is Patrick's daughter, and Kim, who is the fiancé. She was also in Gates of Hell. She was um, one of the four characters in, in Fulci's Gates of Hell. So we've got a lot of people that have familiar faces. We have some other people that uh, maybe you have or haven't seen before. Um, but this cast of characters is basically... Uh, we, we get introduced to all 10 of them at once and the film has basically kind of a rehashing of this. And then there were none uh, Agatha Christie kind of thing where one by one uh, these characters start to get killed. And so trying to figure out who's doing the killing uh, you get, um, you, you can whittle down the number of suspects as another person gets bumped off um, but the film itself is very well, I think, you know, I think very well photographed. And um, the the locations that they found for this thing, the interiors and the exteriors, are all very gothic looking and very spooky. Um, and there is this one character who goes by the credit of the mystery man. Nehru man. <laughs> the man yeah, in the Nehru jacket. The man in the Nehru jacket, right. And uh, he basically... Um, shows up every once in a while to confuse everyone and, and, and uh, start spouting off uh, Shakespearean um, quotes and just make commentary on everyone's behavior. Um, but while all of that's happening, basically I don't know Jason what you think, but I found it very odd that this group of people would want to hang out with each other because they all seem to have something bad to say about each other, or they all seem to have something, some sort of grudge. I, I don't know why they were all together in the first place. Well, I
0: think from there, that actually comes into where I see, uh, if you have anything that I, when we talk about The Washing Machine, I ha, I will be able to go on about that one. I haven't had as long to think over this one and look too deeply into it for my own good, but, <laughs> um I do think that if this is any sort of a commentary, you run into the same sort of thing that you do with Five Dolls for an August Moon where everybody is hanging out with this guy for their own reasons. They all have something they want from him or that they need him for something. Uh, I think it was Russell who said that uh, they are all living off of Patrick's money. And so you've got, just to quick rundown here. You have Patrick, you have his daughter and his sister, who obviously the three of them are connected by blood. You have Lynn's boyfriend, Duncan. You have Rebecca's girlfriend, Doris. That's where they connect in. Um, And then you have Patrick's ex-wife, who they didn't necessarily part on the best of terms, but there's still some feelings there. And then you have his ex-wife's current husband, who is basically about two, seems to be about two steps shy of just taking a poker to Patrick's head throughout most of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, then again, you can kind of understand that as her current husband is both somewhat jealous of Patrick because the ex-wife still has some feelings for him, and the current husband owes him quite a lot of money, which is the problem that they all have. And then you have Russell, who is... really, it's just a bad idea that he's there in the first place. (laughs) Sure, he might be an artist who's living off of Patrick's inexplicable fondness for his art, but he's also Patrick's current fiancé's ex-boyfriend... And that X may not be so uh that might be a little penciled in x there we find out very soon, really, people, if you're going to sneak off to uh go make out while your fiance is wandering around, close the damn door yeah
2: right exactly at least try not to do it where you know you're you're in front of a long hallway that people can look down, but or a mirror where people can
0: look through the door and see that yeah that people in this movie have strange have a remarkable attitude towards privacy. I got to say that right here right now. Yeah, absolutely. I also have to say that the, of all the people pairing off in this movie, the couple I liked the most was Rebecca and Doris cuz those two Except for one point, the two of them seemed like an honest, legitimate couple that did care for each other, and even that one point where I was starting to get a little, ah, don't go cheating on her, it turns out that, no, she's okay with this sort of thing going on. Yeah, yeah, right. And, okay, that's cool. (laughs) That's fine. You might think that her brother's not so okay with it, but that's another story. And we already know that Kim doesn't necessarily
2: mind that stuff too much, so hey... (laughs) Yeah, I, I I was I was really. I mean, at, at one point, I think um, the 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 man in the Nehru jacket had said quite sarcastically, "You know, the thing I like about you the most is how civil you are to each other." And I mean, that really kind of sums up the first act of this film, where we're basically just getting to know all these people. But I think the film does a really good job of of. You know, there's a lot of jolly where there's a lot of characters introduced, and because they have so much action and so much, you know, exposition of the 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 um, the whodunit aspect of the film, that you really don't mm-hmm. get to know uh, these characters. For, they don't become very dimensional. Um, they're pretty flat, and then you're like, oh, who was that? I remember the one film we did. Um, I think it was the dragonfly for each corpse. At one point, mm. I didn't even remember what you know. They showed the killer, and I'm like, "Well, who was that guy?" Because they've all... He, wait, I thought this guy killed it. Killed this. Wait, wasn't the guy who this is killed five minutes ago? <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, he's only on screen twice, and both and before he's revealed as the killer, and in both times he looks completely different. So. Um, I like this film for the fact that they, you know, because they're not going to be getting the police involved and there's another murder and then there's another cleanup of the murder and then there's some clues and then the detective or the amateur detective is going around and talking and looking for clues. When they take all of that out, they have a lot of extra time to develop the characters. And, And it worked for me in this one because I started to understand who everybody was and it's, it still was crazy that they were all hanging out together, but, one way or the other they were so um, So then we get to the point where um, things start to go a little weird and the first thing that happens is somebody cuts a beam uh, over the top of the stage of this theater right where Patrick is standing and almost hits him in the head um, and so he is now kind of alerted to the fact that somebody is trying to kill him and and he doesn't really seem too concerned about it. He just kind of wants to hang out and stay in the theater with everybody else. But he wants to talk about it. And he wants to talk about why. Because at this point in the film, they haven't figured out that they're trapped. Um, and, and that's another, you know, that's probably the first thing to talk about when we talk about the supernatural aspect is this. I think the supernatural, we
0: have to... Table the whole supernatural aspect until later. There's a lot of things to talk about with that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, now at the same time that that has happened, Patrick is starting to be reminded of all of this um, history that the family has with this place and the 100-year curse and everything else, and he starts thinking about these things. Um, But he thinks about them a little bit more... um, openly and starts to discuss them with um vivian his ex-wife once kim is killed so kim is up doing her little soliloquy for the death scene for romeo and juliet and becomes a victim of um the killer she she pretends to stab herself and then actually gets stabbed through the back on the other hand i've seen some people play romeo and juliet and her performance she had it coming yeah (laughs) she did and and you know i think one of the really cool scenes in that as one of the cool things that happened in that scene was when she was killed and and fell over and again as the audience you don't know yet that she really is dead they Mm -hmm. they make a cut to a wide shot of the people that are sitting in the audience but everybody's face is kind of um in shadow and I was just
0: checking that earlier tonight. Yeah, everybody is really in shadow, and you can tell maybe two people are in that audience.
2: <laughs> yeah, you can't figure out who it is, and so and and that's when you go back the second time to watch this, You go, well, let me see who's not there, and clearly there's a hint to who did it, um, but you know there's there's no there's no real indication of who's missing. And I didn't count them, but I should have because really um, it should have been nine people there. Um, if everybody was going to be accounted for, and I don't know if all nine were there. So, um, but eventually, um, we we see this person who uh, kind of this figure who kind of materializes with this weird black cape and this strange-looking mask, um, and 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 just a just as an aside, I like that one scene where. Um, I think it was Doris who thought she saw somebody in the closet and it turned out to just be um, a mannequin. But it really looked real in the film. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that person actually moved at one point. And I'm not sure if she thought she saw the mannequin
0: move or if she... I'm not sure if she thought the mannequin was a real person or if she thought it moved because... I kept backing up over that scene a couple of different times actually because I was wondering, okay, did she see somebody? Is the killer showing up here? The second watch through I was especially watching for that because we find out what we'll talk about later with the ending. But I think the mannequin moves a little tiny bit. Like it's been pushed a little and I think she's responding to that and not to the mannequin itself but you can't tell and that's right. Uh, on, that's where one of the places where I would say that this is kind of brilliant in that because even if she did react to it moving a little that could also just be the wind or something creeping around the theater because you know it Five to eight hundred year old building. You have to figure there are some four footed occupants in there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) If nothing else, a cat to keep the other four footed occupants down. Even though we don't see it, it doesn't like people. (laughs) But
2: it was really creepy because the mannequin. Oh yeah, it, it looked like a it looked like a real person.
0: I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure that it wasn't a real person just standing there very still yeah (laughs) that's how realistic it looked
2: it probably was yeah but but it was it was ambiguous enough to make you kind of feel creeped out and at the same time go well wait a minute i it really is a mannequin you know like like i like i thought the first time i saw that scene that they were going to cut away and then they were going to make it make you think that the person who was standing there moved and replaced themselves with a real dummy yeah. And then the next time that they went back to look at it, you would see something different. But they didn't do that. It was the exact same thing that you saw that you that you thought was alive. And then... Um, it and really then, wasn't. And then Rebecca yeah. goes in and touches it and goes, no, 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 it's just a dummy. You're fine. So, um, but anyway. No matter what, we're going to do the Scooby-Doo eyes in the painting thing. But it didn't do that either. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs>
0: exactly. But so, it really yeah. did look like one of those Scooby-Doo mannequins. <laughs>
2: It did. It did. It was like um, the eyes that follow you. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Bugs Bunny cartoon with the the big orange monster that's behind the painting. Yep. Um, right. <laughs> I really. Um, so so again with this with this figure who all of a sudden kind of emerges and um, Doris uh, follows him and he kind of escapes and he's running through the hallways and jumping around like a maniac. Um, he's the, awfully spry for. <laughs>
0: anybody yes. in that group yeah, mean, he's way too old to be moving around that well
2: yeah he, t- he totally is like i've this is one of the things that was interesting about this film is that most of the time when you have a killer uh, they're very rarely on screen full body mm-hmm. it's, it's more of the time it's like their hands are on the screen or the top of their head is on the screen um, or they're or they're on screen for a split second, but then they're gone again in order to maintain this mystery. But now you have this person who's like, they're on the screen for, you know, a, a good amount of time. You see their movements and their movements aren't, you know, a, the typical killer in a is has very purposeful, slow movements. Like they know they're very confident that no matter what's going to happen, they're going to be fine. Uh, but this killer is, um, you know, he's fighting off guys with pitchforks, and he's jumping around and and um, trying to catch people. And he wasn't as scary as he was freaky. Um, Definitely. I, I don't know what that mask was. It looked like an ancient Harpo
0: Marx. <laughs> but it, it, it had Harpo's hair on, but it, like he was old. Yeah. I don't know what that mask was supposed to be, but it was a damn creepy mask, it's just because it had that uncanny valley thing where... Wait, that should be a face, but it's not a...
2: That looks wrong. It looked less real than the mannequin did. I did. It did, it did. And it it kind of looked... You know, if you were seeing it in the shadows, or if it was on the first couple of times that you saw it on screen... Mm-hmm. You think it's a person without a mask. Right, you think it's a real person, because it doesn't look like the typical jalo mask where it's just, you know, um, a, a veil over the over the face. This is like yeah. a real detailed looking mask with these crazy blonde curly eyebrows. Um, yeah, so weird. So, you know, the middle of the film is basically kind of all the rest of the characters dealing with the situation where they're locked away. Um, and I think that I felt like I was watching demons or like something that influenced demons because they're in a theater all of a sudden, the doors are locked and nobody can get out. Well, the probably
0: call out the 800-pound gorilla in the room on this film. Everybody talks about how this film was the huge inspiration for stage fright. And I've seen a couple of people say that they're not sure it was that influential on it. But I've seen a lot of places where it mentions that this and the influence on that film are pretty obvious because of the whole fact that it's in a theater and you've got people being picked off
2: one by one. right. But, but there was, uh, I, I had to I had to really think logically through this to make sure that I understood because you know, why would you want to lock in people into this thing? Um, but as it turned out, I think, the doors opened outward; uh, they didn't open inward. So um, once you've locked the doors, it doesn't matter whether you're on the inside or the outside; you can't get through. Even if you know, and of course they lock the key, uh, or, or they lost the key, or somebody took the key. So, but mm-hmm. there's there's one scene where um, the door and the, the kind of the uh, the, the the lock, which slides horizontally across, is moved very slowly across. And I think we're supposed to initially assume that this is one of the people um, in the group who's locking everyone in, and then maybe later on you start to think, well, maybe it was just, you know, the well, ghost. It, or... I'm not sure if we're supposed to think that it was a person
0: who locked them... I'm trying to put this in a historical context to some extent, and I know that this is coming out right at the end of the classical era of Jolly, but it also has, there's such a strong Gothic element going through this. And right, I mean, just shortly after the doors are locked, we have the scene on the stage that we'll probably get to a little bit, just after Kim is killed and everybody finds out they are locked in where we have these voices putting on a scene out of Hamlet on the stage and there's nobody there. Right. So I'm not sure if we're supposed to think that that was a person or we supposed to think it's ghosts at this point, because at this point it's been hinted at pretty strongly that there's something bad happened here a lot longer ago. And now, again, we want to talk about the supernatural stuff later, I think, but either way the fact that they are locked in like this, it fits because, I mean, you expect that to happen with these people here and obviously somebody's starting to pick them off because unless they really were just that bitchy, a theater critic, uh, Kim obviously needed to die for some reason and that pro- reason probably applies to Everything else because right now the two murder attempts we've seen are on the guy who has the money and the next person who's probably going to inherit the money. So, presumably, somebody wants somebody else to inherit that money than Kim, right? And they want to hasten that inheritance because they tried to drop a beam on Patrick's head, right? Correct. So, with that, then it makes sense to lock him in because, presumably everybody here except for Vivian and Albert, the ex-wife and her husband, are somewhere in the line of inheritance or trying to hook up with somebody in the line of inheritance. So presumably everybody here, with the possible exception of Albert and the guy in the Nehru jacket, need to die in order for whoever to inherit. And you're... You spend this whole time thinking like, okay, is the guy in the Nehru jacket trying to do this behind the scenes because he's some secret brother or, I mean, with Jolly, you know, they could just come out with that in the third act and, oh, okay, we have to go along with that now. Right, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <The> reality, <laughs> makes no sense of whatever else I'm seeing, but there we go. That's reality now. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> but they do come up with something that I think is better, but we'll get to that later on.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the, And again, that we go back to this man in the Nehru jacket who makes a couple of appearances and then disappears. And when he is on screen, he's saying things that are quite cryptic. And he starts talking about how he, was, he had come back to the theater 100 years ago. And then they start yeah. talking. Nobody else seemed to notice that he said. I mean, they noticed that he
0: said he spent a night here several years ago. They never noticed that he said a hundred years ago. And I have to wonder if that's a trans, if that's a dubbing thing. Did they dub it to a hundred years or
2: what? Because yeah, that yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think Patrick, I think Patrick kind of made a comment that he he comprehended. You know, the joke of you know how it was a hundred years ago, but I. I think you're right. I think, you know, I I think maybe if it wasn't lost in the, in the dub, if they really did say that in the, in the original Italian, I guess it was supposed to be interpreted as him just being like, you know, sarcastic and funny because that's, you know how they were all kind of getting along like yeah you know, you know talking with the, this little tongue-in-cheek thing happening all the
0: time it could also be that they're I mean are they trying to set the audience up to think that it's going to what I was thinking was that they were going to have it turn out to be that the ghost the theater ghosts were behind all of it and there was nobody behind that mask it was a mask and cape and costume just running around on its own with a ghost inside right I'll, I'll admit I was at that point of, okay, this would also make sense. I would be able to, I can work with that. right well
2: and <laughs> and then it then makes just, as much sense as anything else. <laughs> yeah. Especially for the, for the Giallo uh, that, you know, we've come, come to grow and, you know, come to love. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, I start thinking about Phantom of the Opera too, because it's kind of mm-hmm. the same, um, kind of environment, but, um, yeah. Um, you see some of the stills from this
0: and because that mask just looks so wrong, you see the some of the stills, because I was doing research in while I was watching this too. I would you would see the stills and it's like, okay, so is that a guy with his head all burned and this weird mask on the front and you just can't see it that well? Or is this a Phantom of the like you said, Phantom of the Opera thing, because is there a theater ghost that's been I mean that is an actual person who's locked up here? Right. Also, uh, since I am fulfilling the role of creep tonight, um, the amulet that the man in the Nehru jacket was wearing, I want one.
2: <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that looked he cool. Was, yeah, he definitely had, I guess, the... He had the most fashion sense of anyone in here. <laughs> he did. He did. But um, I really did That's like... I, I liked um, Vivian's little dress, where after she took her jacket off, it was just kind of like this, mm-hmm. these fishnet sleeves. And... Um, well, I'll be yeah. honest, I did like the outfit that Lynn was wearing
0: towards the end of there, but I think most everybody here who has a Y chromosome did. So, <laughs>
2: yeah, this is true. <laughs> this is true. And, and um, and, and not to go completely aside, but, um, the music for this, again, I think we talked about it already, but the music for this film is really well done. I think there's a couple of places where it really s- sounded like a- apart from, um, there, there was a piece that really reminded me of Argento's Cat of Nine Tales during some of the kill scenes. And I almost said, wow, this is such a um, kind of lift for Morricone. But a lot of the other music that was done for this film is very original. And um, mm-hmm. apparently this Carlo Savina um, is a Morricone kind of in his own right because he's got like um, close to 200 composing credits uh, in IMDB and his big claim to fame was that he was the conductor for the Godfather film for the the Whoa. the um for the score for there. So he didn't write that iconic theme of da 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 yeah but, but the conductor
0: does almost as much as the composer does in how uh, the music comes across and something like that. So that yeah. he's got cred right there. <laughs> yeah that's
2: a serious amount of cred. So um and i did i was lucky enough to find a copy of the soundtrack so i'll be able to pump mm. that in underneath our discussion so it's uh, awesome. I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to listening to that so um, but yeah i'm i'm am continuing to pause um, every time we get to a, a a point in the discussion where we're going to move on to the next part of the film because the the next part of the film i still i'm a little foggy on remembering even though i watched it twice there was this midsection, again where um you know doris is killed and um lynn is killed and um russell eventually um is found hung and um it's there's 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 a few slow parts where they're talking about you know where where Vivian and Patrick are discussing their relationship and, and what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And Patrick's talking about the curse and the family and what happened 100 years ago, and there's this weird drawing um, where they start I, to compare what's going on currently which which what's going on in that drawing and the difference between the cigarette and I forget what it was. A
0: dagger. Okay, I think I, I'm, I know what part of the film you're talking about, I think to run through that, Doris gets killed. And by the way, that was one of the two most wince inducing kills in this movie for me. Because <laughs> my family used to drive around in a van a lot. So I know what it's like to get hit or almost hit by a sliding door like that. Right. <laughs> and right. I can just imagine what that was like for her. And ow. Yes. <laughs> but uh, so Doris gets killed. They find. So, okay, Kim gets stabbed in the back. Russell, yeah, Doris gets killed and nobody knows it yet. Russell, right. the killer threatens Vivian. Russell confronts the killer. Russell gets killed off screen and hung. Um, everybody really, really wants to believe that Russell killed Kim and then hung himself out of guilt and that there's really no killer here. Honest, we're all safe. Then Rebecca realizes that Doris isn't there, goes running off to find her, and meets the second wince inducing kill in this film. Right. Ow. Yes. Uh, that, that's one that borders on the issue of taste, but at least they, the stabbing itself was off screen. I right. will just say that. Um, shades of Solange. But uh, <laughs> the. Then. This is the picking them off one at a time stage, and everybody rush, everybody's out, freaking out. I think the let's see here, there's Vivian, Albert, Patrick, Lynn, and Duncan left. Lynn and Duncan are two of the last ones to go. So I think everybody runs out. They are shown the tableau staged with Rebecca and Doris. And by the way, feel free to cut me off whenever you want to pick this up again. I'm just trying to run through the order of kills here.
2: No, that's fine.
0: Albert turns up dead in the least... The one kill in here that I have to wonder how the hell they pulled that off with what we find out in the end. Um, yeah, I don't remember that one. Albert... What Albert's, happened to Albert? Everybody shows up in the middle of the theater because Patrick and Vivian were making, out, making up and making out. Right. Um, Duncan and Lynn were off being possible red herrings, or possibly getting themselves killed, whichever ended up happening first. They each, they all meet up in the theater. The sh- curtain slides to the sh- side, reveals the tableau with Rebecca and Doris. They hear, I think it's applause up in the side gallery. They pan up to that and there's Albert sitting there. He oh, slumps yeah. forward and he's been strangled by whoever was doing the applause in the back. But... Everybody except the man in the Nehru jacket, who may or may not be real, we're figuring out at this point, is down in the gallery when this happens. Right. And I just want to... Another one with the shots. The shot where Patrick is talking to the man in the Nehru jacket, turns around to talk to Vivian, and the guy's gone after he turns around...
2: Yes. ...is
0: brilliantly cut together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you cannot... You cannot see the cut, and there had to be one there. Either that or they actually got a ghost in there.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) So They employed a real ghost.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking they probably
2: have a cut in there, but that is brilliantly cut together, so kudos Uh, to the editor. (laughs) Yeah, that was really cool, and I think um, this is just another um, one of the many situations in the film where um, at least as somebody who watches a lot of Jolly, you're watching this going, okay, this is another weird thing that just happened, but I'm still going to um, go along with that there has to be a logical explanation that um, we're going to get some sort of um, resolution at the end that that explains all of the mm-hmm. weird things happening, kind of like at the end of the Scooby-Doo episode where you realize you know, that all the weird things Monsters and ghosts were really just, you know, the guys in rubber masks. Yeah, the guys <laughs> trying to pull <laughs> this off. The guy in a rubber mask. Yeah, really. <laughs> and but
0: and I'm still kind of waffling between okay, is this going to be a logical explanation or is it going to be supernatural? Because, I mean, I'm thinking at this point, um, this is where my eclectic knowledge of weird shit comes into handy. Right. Um, when they were, when they had the Macbeth or the Hamlet scene going on that I mentioned, um, they try to tape the monologue going on on the stage, and when they play it back, it has the two people who whispered to each other in the background amongst the living, but on the playback there isn't the booming voices on the stage that everyone heard. And again, I don't know how they pull that off within the framework of it. Right. I had an idea and it might still fit together, but that gets into spoilers. So we'll get to that in a little bit, I think. Right. Um, but they yeah. do a really good... And so I'm not sure if it's supernatural or not, because I've seen so many of the horror movies where it would be supernatural, and I know that there's this uh, fantastique that they called them, where they do play with blurring the lines a little bit more, like you're all the colors of the dark, where is it a masked killer, or is it a satanic cult? And it turned out kind of both. We'll get to that, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: a little bit of calm A and B. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and I really Somewhere like there that. There you scene. get an egg roll. That,
0: It'll that, probably stab you to death.
2: Whatever. <laughs> that, and that scene is... is I, I really um, thought that scene was well done with you know, the the voice coming out, um, uh, the soliloquy from Hamlet and, you know, just the weirdness that was going on on this on the mm-hmm. stage with the wind and blowing everything. And um, I wasn't expecting um, what happened with the tape recorder. It was that totally blew me yeah. away. Like they, you know, that they had the part where they were speaking, but the rest of it didn't get recorded. I was like, Wow. How are they, they How are they going to explain that away? So, um, so yeah. So, so really, um, I think we get to a point towards the end where things start to get a little wacky.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: there's this scene where Duncan gives Lynn a bunch of pills, and then she changes her clothes and puts on the music and starts having this crazy, wicked angel dance thing happening. Um, And at that point, I'm thinking that the movie is going to turn into something like, hey, uh, everybody dropped acid, um, except for one person who staged all these murders, or maybe it's even like no one actually died at all, and everyone's just been hallucinating this whole time. And actually...
0: Um, lynn says
2: that and it's like if they pull that i'm going
0: to be so (laughs) when her when patrick finds her and we get to the point where lynn is about to try seducing patrick because she's high enough she doesn't care that he's her dad or might not be or whatever right uh (laughs) again italy you gotta love it um but (laughs) and she's saying that None of this is real. This was all, all of that was a hallucination. Nobody's dead. This is the reality. I'm stoned out of my mind and this is what's real. <laughs> and then we, and it's like, oh, the, it is like, if they pull this, I am not going to be a happy person. <laughs> of course, by this point, we've, I think this is after we've gotten the almost the reveal of who the killer is, but. Right. Do we want to get into that now, or do we want to try and save that
2: for a bit later? Well, I mean, I don't know that there's too much left to go yeah. over with the film. I mean, the next scene after that dance scene is um, where, was it Vivian, is cornered in a room by, yeah. by Duncan, who's wearing the disguise, but then... Um, if you thought it really was Duncan, he d- does a good job of explaining um, his he innocence. Found the
0: costume discarded in the hallway, and was just uh, apparently decided to be a jackass and I mean, <laughs> show that he found the costume in the most dickish way possible that could have gotten him killed right there, and nobody would have batted an eyelid <laughs> if he'd had. It's, they would have pulled it off. It's like, okay, he's the killer. We're done. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh wait, he wasn't the killer? You know what? I don't care. He still had it coming. <laughs> I mean, if Patrick had come in there and beamed him over the head with a candlestick and he'd been dead, I would not have shed a tear for Duncan. I don't yeah. think Lynn would have shed a tear for Duncan, but I think Lynn would have been clinging to Patrick. So. Right. <laughs> but uh, and this is the point where we get the reveal. You're right. Um, where Mind if I take this one? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, This is where Patrick and Vivian are talking about it. Patrick comes fully clean about everything that's happened at this theater. By this point, he's suggested a couple times that he's not sure if he might be going crazy because he saw the guy in the Nehru jacket who then disappeared and Vivian hadn't seen him. This... A hundred years ago, on this very night, a massacre took place in this theater. That's why it's been closed for a hundred years. Don't ask why there's electric lighting. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That that was something that I noticed here. It's like, wait a second, this place has been closed for a hundred years. There's electric lights everywhere. And the reality of that is that this was actually a real theater, and my God, I want to go to that theater someday. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's really Uh, awesome. So there was a hundred years ago, there was this thing going on, and then we find out that the party where somebody suggested we go to this cursed theater on the hundredth anniversary of the last time the curse took effect is also Patrick's birthday. <laughs> and it's like, wow. So this guy was born not a, i mean, this guy was born say 50 years or so after the last massacre that took place here exactly. So you have it's okay. Dude, Patrick, I don't care who suggested coming up here, what were you thinking? Right. (laughs) Really, there is no way this ends well. And he proves that there is no way this ends well, as Vivian is talking to him. She turns around to look for something, because she had seen a picture of Nehru man up on the wall earlier, that then disappeared and turned out to be somebody else. The timeline's a bit wonky with that portrait, but whatever. Um... And she's turning around to look at something, and she turns back around, and there's Patrick wearing the cloak from the killer's outfit, and she's telling him to take it off. He pulls up the knife. She turns to run away, and he tries to stab her. And if you're watching, you actually notice that he very obviously stabs her brooch, so wow. um, her fashion sense saved her. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, but he doesn't notice this because it turns out that Patrick is the killer. Right. Maybe. At the very least, he tried to kill Vivian. <laughs> and this is where it all starts
2: to go, really? But it still holds together. So, <laughs> back to you. It does. I mean, it's it's wonky, but then um, you kind of have to you kind of have to watch the, I ended up watching the last 10 minutes a couple of times over partly partly because the first time through I was groggy and I was I was nodding off um and yeah, you do
0: not want to doze off during this you will miss everything and it will you'll wake up and it's suddenly
2: a baba movie <laughs> right right exactly like where where did all these torches come from uh so I think the next thing that happens is that Vivian not Vivian um Lynn Mm-hmm. and Duncan are uh, well no uh, Lynn and uh, is sitting in the gal in the in the audience of the of the theater out of her head. <laughs> yep, still totally whack. we think, we think. <laughs> And then um, Patrick comes in and confesses that you know he doesn't know what's going on he's out of his mind he's the killer please help me, please help me and then Duncan comes in and strangles him to death.
1: He helps and him
2: what the hug? Ten fingers round
0: the neck. Well, okay, in this case, it's a garage, but close enough. He, he
2: needed a hug. It just happened to be a little high. It was yeah, right. It was around the wrong part of his body. Uh-huh. So, so, um, so I think that we're the next thing is we're it's explained to us that Duncan and Lynn had plotted to kill uh, Patrick to get his money and not um, white. Here's where it starts to get... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, I mean, the idea was that um, Lynn was supposed to... Um, Lynn was supposed to drop this beam on his head. Um, but at the last second, uh, he walked out of the way. And as a result, it kind of pushed him over the edge. And all of the other things that were going on between the curse and the Nehru jacket man and everything else kind of... ...pushed him over the edge to kill everyone else. I think that what actually happened was... ...in several of these
0: Jolly, we find out that... ...person X was trying to convince person Y... ...that they were going crazy and were actually the killer... ...when really it was X who was the killer. But what happened here is... ...they actually drove him... ...they actually intended to drive him crazy... And make him kill everybody else, so then he'd be off at a nut house, or they'd be able to kill him and say self-defense. Oh hey, we happen to inherit millions of dollars. Who knew? Right. But because Duncan says we're just lucky you didn't actually kill him when you dropped that beam. Which that and everything else that goes into how because we see they give us a flashback scene. Right of Lynn cutting the rope and dropping the beam instead of just the black-gloved hand that we see in the start. right? And so she did that on purpose, and then they swapped out the rope afterwards, because when Patrick's looking at that beam, Lynn and Duncan show up, the Nehru man shows up, he looks back at the rope, and the rope's intact. Yep. And I think this also explains what happened with the tape recorder? Almost. Almost. Because we, in the very very beginning in the credit sequence when Lynn and Duncan are driving up to the theater, Duncan's futzing with this tape recorder. Yep. And he's flipping the tape over in it so I, and you're just thinking, okay, he's turning over the music. I guess they didn't have in-dash tape players back then. They probably didn't so okay, fine. They just Wanted to listen to the cassette instead of the 8-track. Okay. Yeah. But then we get in here, and they're doing this stuff with the recording, and I'm thinking that what's supposed to have happened is that on the drive up, they recorded the whispering about what's going on. Shh. And so no. that, that would be on the tape when they played it back, and he didn't record what was going on on the stage because he would have had to plant something to play that there, but they don't explain that clearly, so I'm not sure. No,
2: <laughs> I think the only problem with that is the person who speaks. Yeah, it's Vivian, not is,
0: Lynn. But right, maybe so the she had to person? have been in on it. Yeah, maybe the whispers are supposed to be different. I don't know. That's where I'm not sure. Like I said, that's the almost, <laughs> right, right. Because it's like, but it's not Lynn who says it, so it couldn't have been that unless they just want to. I'm thinking too hard. Move on, <laughs>
2: right? It <laughs> could, could but, be. Uh, it's a it's a good kind of logical, non supernatural and so um, all way of, of explaining.
0: This, yeah, all of it seems to be that they were trying to drive Patrick out of his mind so that he would go homicidal on somebody. He just right. happened to go homicidal on everybody and I find myself thinking boy, you guys must be really hard up. If your plan involves let's drive this guy into a homicidal frenzy and then take the chance of being his victims before we take him down <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> this is not the best plan. No. But then again, how many of these These actually are and in their defense it works (laughs) I suppose that if he did come after either of them they would then be fully justified in killing him so there is I mean presumably their plan works then because he's not married to Kim not married to Vivian Lynn would inherit right there no matter who else was alive the fact everybody else died first just means that hey there's fewer people to have to buy off afterwards right We get through that, and so there is a logical explanation, more or less, for who the killer is. Right. And then we get the part where, as the Jalo score always has to raise the question of what happens to the killers. Yes. And that's where this movie gets really kind of fun, because... We've had the explanation about the curse of the theater. It's like, okay, so is this curse all bunkum and they're just behind everything here? Is this a Scooby Doo ending? No, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the Scooby Doo ending. No. Nope. Unless you're counting the island of whatever, the Lost Island or what, Zombie Island movie where, oh shit. There actually are evil zombies here. They aren't animatronic because yeah. the man in the Nehru jacket is the snazziest, most fashion-conscious ghost ever. <laughs> he is <laughs> because he shows up and he's the one who suggests they come up here. Or maybe it was Lynn. It's kind of either one of them. Um, but five we find out they go down trying to find a way out of the theater because just before he came out to strangle Patrick, Duncan did the logical thing that you wonder why they didn't do this an hour or so ago when there were still eight of them alive. He takes a a pickaxe off the wall and he hacks the lock off the freaking door. (laughs) We are getting out of this place. I don't know why the door locked because I don't know why the keys didn't work. I don't care. We're taking the lock off the door. Right, right. And then they come back to Lynn. Because Lynn's kind of freaked out about, okay, my dad's dead. This is great. I have money. Everybody else is dead. I don't have to split the money except with you, honey. Uh, So how are we going to get out of this place? Did you think of that, Mr. Smart
2: Person? Yes, I did.
0: (laughs) I hacked the lock off. See, here we go out to
2: the door, and there's the lock. What? Yeah. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. Now things are, and there's, and you know, there's there's another 10 or so minutes left in the film. So you're going, okay, um, we're not done yet. There's, are there's they hallucinating? More. There's more to come. And so um, from that point where Duncan basically says, this is impossible, it's, it shouldn't be this way. They find a way <clears throat> down into the catacombs of this place. Don't ask why a theater has catacombs. We all know from Phantom of the Opera, theaters come with catacombs. They do, they, <laughs> especially those that are this old. So, But, <clears throat> again, who's maintaining the torches? They're all lit. I don't think it really matters. Um, but they finally get down to the point where the man in the Nehru jacket, who you've been waiting to see one more time because you know that we're not done with him yet. He's got to he, have... Some- he has to either die or explain something. It turns right. out that he explained something. <laughs> and thankfully, that's what happened, because I didn't yes. want to just die. Um, so I think, the way I understand it, is that the curse on the family is that um, the father and the daughter um, from each generation every hundred years have an incestuous relationship. And so as a result, they're doomed until... The, the the curse of this 100 um, years can't be broken until the daughter finally decides to renounce uh, her incestuous la- relationship with her father or something like that? Was that how it... I, what I think it's
0: weird because it's almost like they have two curses going on. Right. Which is... I mean, this is a family with a past here because yeah. Patrick tells us that 500 years ago they led some, I mean, his family was, went to dinner, I mean, had this prince over for dinner, and they went, uh, they took care of him, sort of like um, when you have the the brothers over in Florence, they show up, you assassinate them, you take their money, you take their land, and all of a sudden, you're maybe not the prince, but you have the prince's stuff, and that's good enough. Right. And then you end up with a curse from there. Except that we also have this weird curse where it's the 100-year curse. <laughs> where, like you said, the father is a little too doting on the daughter. The two of them have a relationship. And the daughter is the only survivor of every 100-year's massacre which takes out the father and the daughter goes on to be the survivor pregnant with the heir to the family which isn't actually her hubbies but it's the fathers and all sorts of like i said italy you gotta love it right (laughs) but and so they end up going down there and there's this massacre that should have happened and technically did happen But here's where we get to the part that I love of the ending because they've killed everyone. They're happy. They've got the money. But it really is creepy, Lynn's relationship with her father through this because at the very start of the movie, I mean, they talk about how they have a very close relationship. Yeah. But in the start of the movie, Lynn is kissing her father on the lips in front of her father's fiancé. Right. She's right... It's like... Hi, future mom.
2: <laughs> yeah, and he has a weird look on his face like, why is she doing this? Yeah,
0: like, why is she doing this? And yet, here she's doing it, and then she tries to seduce him later. And there's definitely signs that this relationship is not necessarily the healthiest father-daughter relationship in the history of mankind. We'll just right. leave it at that. Right. But, uh, so she and Duncan go down into the catacombs. There's these torches... The man in the Nehru jacket, now wearing robes that are epic, tells them this bit about the incestuous curse, in addition to the killed the prince curse, I guess. (laughs) And then they find the tomb, the graves in there set aside for Patrick, for Kim, for everybody. And them, they find their graves down there. They fall to their knees. The torches fall over, and it's implied that they are probably having a hot time in the old town tonight.
2: <laughs> right. But and I then mean, I guess we're supposed to assume that once these um, mortu or you know once these mausoleum you know slabs or whatever they are are revealed, um mm-hmm. with with the dates, you know, in nineteen seventy four. So <laughs> for that yeah, that that exact evening. Um, I guess we're supposed to just assume that they didn't think that, hey, let's try to find a way out. Maybe oh. we can maybe we can avoid this actually happening. They actually do
0: turn around right at that point. I mean, Duncan I mean, Lynn falls to her knees and starts wailing and screaming. Duncan turns around to try and leave and the they're walled in.
1: So I oh, did notice
0: that. Because okay, he turned around and they were... The hallway they came in through is now a block of stone walling them in there. Oh, uh, okay. So it's very... Uh, this is where the supernatural element takes over. And yep. um, th- yeah, they're down there. They If they're lucky, they die tonight. <laughs> because otherwise, it's the slow death
2: of hunger, starvation, and lack of oxygen. So neither yeah. of these is fun. Well, if if the uh, if if the tombstones are accurate then they don't have much longer to
1: go.
0: Right. So. I mean they've just got the rest of that night and they're out of there. But uh, so presumably they die down there in the catacombs. But by this point you might have forgotten that there's somebody who's not dead yet. Right. <laughs> As we cut up to Vivian, who's waking up, having passed out after being stabbed by her ex-husband in the brooch. She wakes up, she finds a secret exit, and it turns out it's actually broad daylight out. Who knew? (laughs) Because she goes wandering off. It's like, okay, I got out of here. And you've got to think, boy, how is she going to explain this when she gets back? But the good news is, she is not actually the only survivor of this. I thought back, and there is one other unsung hero to this movie. And The caretaker gets out alive. The caretaker, he left when this all started. He's like, yeah, hi, boss. You take you and your rich buddies in there. I ain't spending the night in this place.
2: (laughs) Yeah. He's like, well, you know, it's very damp in this area of the country all the time, and now I'm leaving.
0: Yeah, it's very damp in this area of the country. Um, by the way, you do remember this is the night when everybody in here is supposed to get slaughtered, why? <laughs> but <laughs> Don't you know, bring, I'm not going to bring that
2: up. You're the boss. You know what you're doing. <laughs> I know. I know that they had to tie this loose end up with Vivian, but yeah. the ending just was like, I, I, why were they? I thought that something else was going to happen, because it, yeah. t- it took her a long time from the point where she she woke back up, she starts stumbling around, she goes through that spiral staircase, and then she... She finds Patrick dead. <laughs> yeah, and then she just kind of decides to collapse on this one spot near the wall, which just happens to be a trapdoor.
0: Yeah. I, it's like, is she going to find a vault with the ancient family treasure there? <laughs> You're wondering what's going to happen, but it turns out it's just the exit, so... It's just the exit, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the ghost could have just unlocked
2: the door for her at this point, but... <laughs> right. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Cube, but it reminded me of the ending of Cube where um, at the very end, the one guy who was left just eventually finds his way out, and he walks out, and that's the end of the movie, like, and the, you know, it, it, for Cube, it's it's it was a good ending because he was the only guy in the group that wasn't able to, to, to tell what had happened. So Mm -hmm. everything that happened remained a secret. Um, But it was the same kind of ending where, um, you know, she's, she's really disconnected from all of the, um, the characters for the most part and everybody else is dead and now she's outside. And I guess it was kind of like, you know, well, we have to have this, Ending where at least somebody makes it out alive, and at least you can feel happy for somebody who didn't succumb to all of this horror and terror at the end of the at the end of the day. And technically, I mean, if you think about it, she's the
0: one person there who's I mean, aside from Rebecca and Doris, she is the one person there who doesn't deserve. I mean, who isn't either. Connected to the curse, which Rebecca and Doris are technically. Right. So she's not connected to the curse because she divorced Patrick and she was not. It's at least implied that she was not actually Lynn's mother. So presumably there was a previous Mrs. Davenant before her um, who they don't bring up, I guess. But so she's not a part of the curse and she wasn't a part of the. I'm sponging off of him and kind of want him dead because he because I want his money from him. She, right. She had a bad, I mean, it, horror movie morals. Of course, there's the whole the people who deserve to die do question and. She might have been a bad person in the past, but you get the sense that she regrets her previous actions and wants to make amends for them. And if Patrick hadn't been stark raving mad, maybe she would have. Right. But at that point, she would have then been under the uh, jurisdiction of the curse. So technically she's just as well off that Patrick got killed because by now, I suppose by the rule of last person standing, Uh, she probably wouldn't end up inheriting everything, but (laughs) either that or the family's over and the curse is over because I suppose that with Lynn dead too, the curse is done.
2: I think, (laughs) but (laughs) it's hard to tell. Yeah, the curse is done, but no one benefits from it because everyone in the family... Well, yeah, everybody... Except except Vivian, Vivian everyone's dead. (laughs) Right, and she's not related to them anymore. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So, And this is this is where i started um this is where i was actually earlier in the movie texting you the other night uh saying that i thought we were going to end up having a conversation about suspiria here because where i draw the line between a typical horror movie and a jalo is that you need a menace that's human for a jalo to mean and This movie slipped in as a a technicality because Duncan and Lynn and Patrick are all non-supernatural forces and there's no supernatural thing explaining what most of the mayhem is. It just happened. It's that whole thing of before you kill somebody to inherit, make sure you know what you're inheriting because it turns out that you've inherited this 800-year-old theater and an ancient family curse. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Oh wait! You didn't know about that ancient family curse. Guess what? <laughs> you're gonna find out all. Of... Hey, here's Nehru man to tell you all about it. <laughs>
2: yeah. Tell them what they won, Mister yeah. Nehru. Jacket, tell them what they won, Phil. <laughs> you won the uh, fact that you're
0: carrying your father's child and are probably going to end up dead. <laughs> I that.
2: Sorry, you want it. <laughs> you I like to. Uh, I like to pass to that showcase. Showed it, That showcases. Check out yeah. the next one. Yep. Like, can I take? It's like
0: this is the point where you're talking to Monty Hall and you realize you got the zonk.
2: <laughs> right, you're gonna trade for the box on the display. The, yeah, the display case. nope, you just took the door. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Whoopsies. Uh, so all in all, I like the fact that this does blend the supernatural in with it. Actually, for a bit there, when they were talking about. Like I said earlier, I can go off and forge this entirely different movie, and what I thought they were going to have happen was that the man in the Nehru jacket was actually some sort of connection to the ancient prince they killed off, and... He was in that part of the line, and he is actually hundreds of years old, and every hundred years he lures people here to slaughter them so that he can ensure his eternal life or something like that. That is right. what I thought was going to happen, and it was going to turn out that that parchment spelled out the ritual, and in that weird Arabic slash Aramaic slash maybe Sanskrit writing that no, I have no clue what it said next to each picture. It right. was like, okay, this person dies this way, this person dies this way, this one dies this way, and you go through all of this, and you get to live another hundred years. And that would explain why the guy looked the same in the portrait from 1708 But that's one of the weird things is, okay, it's very clearly a portrait of him as he appears now that was supposedly made in 1708, but the 100-year curse is in 74. (laughs) So it's like, okay, so he looks, if we assume that he died in the 1774 massacre and has been here through two cycles of the curse, He should have looked a lot older by then, so what the heck's up with that? Right. (laughs) I actually thought for a bit that we were going to have a Lovecraftian Jalo, which would have been incredibly cool for me, because I love both. Yeah. (laughs) But it turns out that it was more of a Gothic Jalo, which is also cool. (laughs) Yeah. This was like Black Sunday meets Blood in Black... It was like Black Sunday meets Bay of Blood. Right. (laughs) Because yeah. you've got the ancient curse and all that stuff going on. You've also got the everybody who has money really wants to kill each other so that they can get everybody else's money and win at the end. Whoever dies with the most toys wins.
2: Right. Well, so, I was I was reminded a little bit of House on Haunted Hill. Yeah. Um, clearly, you know, obviously the, the the main connection is the group that's locked in to this place overnight. But also, I think what more subtly is that. House on the Haunted Hill had the same thing with with um, what's real and what isn't. Is there really a supernatural thing in play here or is it just somebody trying to make people think it's supernatural?
0: And actually on that note, the remake of House on Haunted Hill is actually almost exactly what happens here because, it turns out that this was all a plot to kill somebody, except there actually is ancient, horrific ghosts in back there who want you dead and are going to make you that way.
2: <laughs> right.
0: When it turns out in the end where they have the CGI widgets from wherever come out to eat everybody.
2: <laughs> was that um, And there... Was that remake any good?
0: I mean, depends on your definition of good. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, I really, really like
0: the original, because it's just... It was... I really love the original, because, I mean, you cannot beat Vincent Price and his wife bantering back and forth about wanting to kill each other. Right. (laughs) Especially when you know that those two were deeply in love and would be for the rest of their lives. Right. Because it is just so much fun to watch that. But the remake, I would say if you want to watch Jeffrey Rush do an uncanny hybrid of vincent price and john waters okay <laughs> that because like, he he looks like a young vincent price when he's in there and but with the john waters mustache huh. and they're they tell you in the film right away that this is a thrill ride don't think about it you're just here to have fun and be scared and in the end, that's exactly the type of movie it is. It's the supernatural horror movie equivalent of a lot of these. Jolly, because if you think about it too hard, you start thinking, wait a second, how did the ghost in the 1920s use the internet? Right. And then it starts to break down. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you're just having fun watching Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think it was, whoever, if you're having fun watching The Evil Wife be evil and then turn out that there is something supernatural here that's going to eat her? Okay, you can have fun with that. And actually, when I was just thinking about it now, it actually ends the exact same way as this, because the two adulterous people carry out their plot, they get killed by the supernatural menace, and the one or two innocent people get out through a secret doorway that nobody knew about, including them, and end up having the and end up with these big checks floating down to them. So, actually, I think that they watched this movie before they made that remake, <laughs> they, they just might had have. more CGI to use instead of a guy in a Nehru jacket, right? So, I would have preferred the guy in the Nehru jacket in that movie because this guy was he was my he was the most fun character in here because you could just tell that he was looking at these people and he's like, yeah, you deserve exactly what you got yeah, coming. Exactly. You are going to get it. It is <laughs> going to be so fun. <laughs> I'm
2: going <laughs> to love watching <laughs> you guys die. <laughs> well, he is just I, enjoying himself this whole time. <laughs> I, I really think that um, this film may have had a lot more influence on people than it gives it gets credit for, but I don't know. I mean I, I don't know how this seems like uh you know we're we're in kind of the second and third tier of obscure jolly on this podcast. I mean we've gone through most of the stuff that's considered, you know, the must see films of the genre. And now we're starting to like look at the ones that kind of um, escaped most people's radars. But this yeah. one it seems like it's Unless it's just, unless it's just uh, something uh, that came before it is really influencing it. It seems like it. It had a lot of stuff that was um, that was read that you know that was that it influenced in the future. You're talking about stage fright. Uh, we were talking about demons um, and and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I think it's. Uh, I think it's well, probably kind of like an unsung hero. I actually
0: have uh, Volume 2 of So Deadly, So Perverse here, and um, Troy does bring up that it's a little arguable if this is a proper jalo because it's really nothing ambiguous about the supernatural. There is a ghost at the end of this, unless you just take that entire ending as they were tripping balls. Right. Because they took those pills earlier, and those pills are kicking in, and they are not having a good trip. Right, right. It could <laughs> I'm be. Not sure. That could be the ending, but I like to think that, yes, there was a ghost there, and they got what they deserved. Right. That's just me. But, um,
2: <laughs> Sense this, of justice.
0: Yeah. Um, Troy does bring up that he doesn't think it has as much of an influence on stage fright as some people say based on what they've written. But uh, let's see here, does he have anything to say about how well it did here? Um, here we go. Uh, the similarities are on the superficial side, however. And it is entirely possible that Suave never even saw the film. It was by no means a major box office hit after all and has slid in obscurity since its release. So apparently it didn't do that spectacularly at the time he has some interesting bits here about the uh, I mean like you said earlier so many people in this film went on to appear in other jolly that we know and love right. and uh, yet at the same time this came at the end of the careers of the director and the lead actress because <laughs> yes. they were pretty much finishing up their careers and about to retire with this film but uh, so i don't know that it was that influential but i do think it was influential on probably more on horror films than it was on the jolly because one thing that i do keep in mind here when i think of the timeline there is that leading up to through the 50s and 60s and 70s obviously the 50s you have your monster movies you have your houses your house on a haunted hill and a lot of your ghost movies coming up through the 60s and 70s. But horror does take that arc more into the human killers after this point. Right. So I wonder if this had more of an influence abroad on the people who used to be writing their supernatural gothic stories, like your Hammer Horror saw this and started thinking okay people are ready to start having more in the way of humans doing this stuff but we can still play with our supernatural tricks because i think of some of the iconic horror films of the 70s and when you get outside of the blockbuster issues like jaws of course right uh, you start to run into a lot of the this is where the they start to transition into that proto slasher phase where you have your Black Christmas, your... I mean, obviously, Peeping Tom came long before this, so anyone who wants to point at me, laugh, and say, come on, Psycho came out a decade and a half before this, you're talking crazy. (laughs) But I do think that you start to see more of that it looks like a supernatural menace, and maybe there is something to that, but the human menace is a greater threat. Because you look at it, and yes, there is a family curse here, but the big threat of the movie is Patrick's gone cray cray,
1: right.
0: and he's out there. He's sticking people. He's running doors through them, He's doing things to his sister that he that are really very very not nice.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. And posing her next to her girlfriend, etc. And he's somehow strangling his romantic rival from half a room away. Whatever. Yeah.
1: But, how All this that one going
0: off. on, while there is the guy and the curse and stuff, the ghosts only kill two people. And even then, it's not so much that they kill them as they say, yeah, you're down here. You're staying down here. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go open the door for the nice lady upstairs when she wakes up so that she can get out of here and not go start grieving mad. You have fun running out of oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> we've left you in a sealed room with lots of torches if you don't burn to death, you'll run out of air.
2: Right, exactly. (laughs) So,
0: the ghosts are, I mean, like I said, the man in the Nehru jacket's kind of a nice guy, really, aside from the fact that he is obviously a dick, and that he's like, he knows this is all coming, he's not gonna help him get out of this. Yeah, not at (laughs) all. That's not his job. (laughs) He's gonna enjoy watching these people take each other out, and they do.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and did you notice in the very beginning when the credits rolled that he's in the back seat with uh, Vivian and Doris? No, I didn't notice that, actually. But Yeah, because hmm. um, I, mean, I watched halfway through the film and then I watched the beginning again and they started talking. I got halfway to the point where they started talking in the film like, well, where did this guy come from? Who invited him? And nobody could seem to come up with an number, answer, yeah. and then if you watch the credits again, it's Vivian and, um, no, not Vivian, I'm sorry, Rebecca and Rebecca Doris, Doris are driving up, and um, he's sitting in the back of the seat.
0: Let me just uh, bring that, uh, that's close it's enough to the beginning, I can bring that up here and see, and because I'm wondering if he even came up with them, <laughs> and I didn't see him in the back seat, and I was wondering if he uh, came with the theater, as it were, but Let's see here. There's Vivian and Albert. I'm sure this is riveting for people who are listening on the podcast.
2: But... <laughs> I'll, I'll do the soundtrack. There's Patrick. Patrick's alone.
0: <laughs> You'd think he'd be
2: driving with Kim. but No, he, <laughs> yeah, is, driving he is driving with Kim. Oh, him. he is? Okay. She, she shows up at the very end.
0: Ah, okay. Russell must be the guy who's the odd one out then. He's the only one. I mean, Russell's the only one here who doesn't have a date. And yeah. Of course, he's borrowing uh, Patrick's. So, okay. Here's Rebecca. And Doris. I don't see the guy in the Nehru jacket, but eh, it doesn't much matter. I mean, he could still be there. I just didn't notice him in that shot. But
2: yeah, they they show him. I think they you know the the opening montage of credits is to yeah to show the that characters who's with who, so... Right. But I think they go back when they eventually... They do. It's kind of like a dual purpose. They want to give you the name yeah. of the actors. And um, they want to let you see who the...
0: I One thing I will say, I wish that we'd seen that party because that would have been interesting. That would have been a good place to drop a hint as to what was actually happening because when they're asking whose idea it was to come out here, which is really a very good question... Um, Patrick first says that it was Lynn's idea which makes sense if you know who the killer is right but Lynn says it was the man in the Nehru jacket so is she I'm wondering was it him or was it to throw off suspicion because everybody at this point is pretty much saying it must be the man in the Nehru jacket none of us know who he came with. Um, We really hope it's him because while we do kind of hate each other, we would really rather be able to know that the people we're hanging out with aren't the killer. So let's please have it be him, the person who's not here with us right now and possibly stabbing us in the back. (laughs) And (laughs) so everybody's pretty quick to want to suspect him when (laughs) it's kind of interesting well, we all know each other. We don't know him, so he's obviously the likely suspect. Well, yes, but we know each other, and we've we've all hated each other for so long we don't even remember why anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But So it's like, on the one hand, it's that issue of you don't want to think the people who are closest to you want to kill you, but on the other hand, perfect strangers don't know why they should want to. (laughs) <laughs> the people who know you know why you deserve to die right. <laughs> the people who don't they, they don't care <laughs> but yeah you're probably right I just didn't see him there and I was trying to spot it oh yeah okay there he is they cut back and they he's okay but he, there is no Okay, they tell you right away he's supernatural because there is no way you could have missed seeing him in the first shot and he's there in the second one. Of course that could always just be a continuity glitch too. Right, right. <laughs> That's the yeah. issue with these, it's like, is this supernatural? Is it a continuity error? Right. I don't know. <laughs> in this movie, it's supernatural. Okay. Yeah, it <laughs> because works we, for works going, a lot. we don't have to worry about it. Yep. How did they get those voices on the tape? They're actually our ghosts. We don't care. (laughs) (laughs) A wizard did it. I ain't got to explain shit.
2: (laughs) Just say Uh, wizard and you've got it. You've got the explanation. At
0: the same time, though, I I really do like you and uh, Richard. I do like this movie. Um, It's really a lot of fun and it feels like something that, like, was mentioned, uh, if you edited out the nudity that frankly makes no sense in most cases, <laughs> um, it would make, and this would book, this would fit on PBS, <laughs> even. I mean, it's like, mystery theater, the killer reserved nine seats. Okay, there we go, this fits. <laughs> right? Except like, for like the part where, beginning. I mean, they might cut the scene where Lynn is dancing around, drops her dress that she somehow changed into here and starts making out with her father. They might edit that out for public broadcast.
2: Yeah, it could be, could be.
0: Then again, things are getting more progressive these days. I (laughs) don't know. I think that's a barrier we have yet to cross.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We'll cross it one day, though. Oh, one of these days.
0: All One right, of these days so. everything will be permissible and nobody will bat an eye and these movies will seem like such quaint things. <laughs> actually just to come back here, I actually like I said before, I really liked Rebecca and Doris as a couple. But man, Doris goes down Doris goes down rough and Rebecca goes down hard.
2: Yeah. And that is an Ugly scene. If you think about it, it was almost as if they were punished, yeah, for their relationship. You know, by the the movie.
0: Well, well. On the other hand, though, if you think about it, because of what it turns, if it had been the ghosts, I would say the movie was punishing them. But because we find out that it was Patrick who's the killer. Okay, maybe somewhere in his deranged mind where he actually has spent time in a mental hospital before, we end up finding out. I mean, maybe somewhere in there he just has some very bad feelings about his sister and her girlfriend that maybe, I mean, who knows, maybe they poached his first wife, too. I mean, they were trying number three on.
2: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> Who knows? No, no one is safe.
0: Yeah, no one is safe with these uh On the other hand, I mean like we said number 3 was already making out with his favorite artist, so Right. There you go. But uh <laughs> and I mean but, I mean normally I would agree that the movie's punishing them, but in this case I really don't think that it was so much as it was implying that It's basically saying that Patrick knows all of these people hate him for various reasons, largely resentment, and he hates them right back. Right. (laughs) And uh, actually, I will come clean about that. Uh, Last episode, the issue came up of uh, how we would reference people who are dressing... Differently than one would expect on this show, I did was the one who brought that up, and I never thought that you guys were trying to be offensive in any way. I just, I've got a bad habit of using that phrasing myself because I was taught it, um, (laughs) by people who who have the right to use it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I'm trying to change my bad habit there. And yeah, no, I I, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, definitely. So you guys, you're good. (laughs) Cool. So okay. Anyways. Uh, so, well, anything else on the movie here?
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I think we we really kind of uh, pulled it apart in lots of different ways, and um, I think uh, you know if if you if you're still uh, hanging in there with us, um, we uh, we really liked it. Everybody liked it um, for lots of different reasons, but I think um, the the final word from me would be that. Um, it's it's another one of these films like um, like Jason mentions in the beginning where you know you can watch it um, from a, uh, a standpoint or from a perspective of this is just going to be some entertainment and I'm not going to think too hard about it and um, you could go the other direction and think really hard about it and, and we did um, so it's 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 a great one to go back to because uh, you can get a different perspective on it. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity. That can be um, that that you know you don't know whether it's it's attributed to the supernatural versus um, the real the the, the real plot um, from the real characters. So uh, repeated viewings of this will, I think, reward you with some more uh, insight or at least some more entertaining things to think about. So and you can always. Try watching it from different. I mean,
0: you can watch it one time and take it in as it's presented. You could take it in one time and say, okay, what if after they take those pills, the rest of this is hallucinating? And you could watch it one another time and say, okay, what if everybody's just nuts? Right, <laughs> which is often an option in these jolly, yeah. But uh, I do want to, there was one other thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, this movie's a little tricky. To find unless you know where to look on places like YouTube, but um, I was able to find that it is on Diabolic DVD or Diabolik DVD, I don't know which it is, right? Uh, d a i b o l i k DVD.com, whatever that is, but uh, it is on there in the DVD and the Blu ray. Uh, it's a little steep, but it's a lot better than the price on Amazon, and the extras on it look really interesting, because they've got a couple of interviews with the screenwriter, uh, with Howard Ross, and a few other people who were involved in it, and with, um, apparently this was a really in, really frantic set in trying to get this movie put together, and there are some memories about that that they get into that are apparent, look like they could be interesting discussions.
2: Yeah, and and, um, and I think that um, they have subtitles for the... Uh... Yeah, they do have... That is one other thing. Um,
0: if you're missing those English subtitles for the bits of this where it drops into Italian, you can guess at what they're saying, probably, from what you do get the context of, but there's a lot of stuff in there you could miss otherwise, like the fact that nobody does know who this guy is. A lot of that's discussed in Italian, so it's hard to understand. (laughs) The English subtitles really help there. Yeah. Uh, You also get a scene... There's a scene... One of the scenes where the man in the Nehru jacket's coming in and being cryptic that they do reference later. um, He basically comes out and says, look, everything that happens here tonight, it's happened before. It'll happen again this is my gig, you're all gonna die. <laughs> and he's saying all of this in Italian, though I liked his Italian voice better than his English one. Yeah. I would have liked to know what he was saying in that Italian voice, which is right. very deep and very... It sounded very impressive, but I think it would have been a lot more... Im- On the other hand, at the same time, the English... I don't give a shit, I'm just gonna enjoy this, does have its own charm. <laughs> right. Um from the acting perspective, you mentioned that. Um, One thing that is brought up is the woman who plays Vivian. Um, Obviously, acting in these movies is hard to judge because they are dubbed. And I have no clue if she did her own voice or somebody else. Probably somebody else because, I don't know, she apparently never really broke out in English language countries. So I'm guessing that part of that is probably not speaking the language too well. Um, But... Her facial acting, she does. A, some of these movies, you have people who are. You can tell they're blocks of wood, but the dubbing is making them a character. Right. In her, you can tell she is acting and doing a good job of it. And the dub may not quite measure up to it, but she gets through the emotional impact in the I am a terror. I am. What the hell is going on here? I do not know. I am scared shitless. I just want out of this place. She right. is doing that very well, all in her face as well as in the dialogue, which gets a little histrionic at a few points.
2: Right, right. But well, that's a good so
0: point. She is. She does a very good job in the acting area, and so does Patrick, really, because um, Chris Avram is the actor, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah and he was another one who you can tell he was selling the character through his reaction to things even if that character was trying to be muted you could tell there was work going on behind the eyes too which is always nice to see with these things because you can't tell how good the acting's doing through the dubbing
2: right
0: and it probably helps in his case that apparently he is romanian and i did not know that (laughs) so he probably learned he probably had to act a bit better be, just to get through in Italy, because right. obviously Italian was not his first language. One would think.
2: Yeah, I, I would think not. Interesting.
0: Cool. Uh, let's see. Any other notes I have? Yeah, I would. Yep, I think I got through pretty much all of my notes on this. So cool.
1: okay.
2: Yeah. Well, that was fun.
0: Oh, I will say, uh, don't go looking to IMDb for the plot summary. It's in Italian.
2: <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too.
0: I actually was. Uh, I if you hadn't had the plot summary, I was going to actually read that, and it probably would have. I probably would have ended up insulting people and starting an international incident with my pronunciation. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. So funny. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, better. Best we didn't do that. That's yeah. So. um... Well, let's see the, the thing we usually end with is what's up for next time and really I don't have a clue um, I know that we want to do this uh, washing machine and my bloody Valentine double feature I don't know if it's going to happen next um, It really depends on creeps availability so I'll just kind of throw out there that that's what we're looking towards and um, I guess that if something changes uh, in the scheduling, it'll get posted up on the group uh, for the people who are interested in in knowing what we're doing. But I will uh, I will go ahead and get this um, mixed down and uh, put some music behind it and get it off to Creep and hopefully Creep is really the um, the man who controls the podcast publishing. So I will um, send it to him and hopefully in his travels. He'll be able to uh, post this up within a couple of days or so, so it will be out there for everybody. But um, until then, I wanted to say an extreme amount of thanks to Jason, who came in as a Clutch uh, co-host, and um, no, Clutch is not the right word, Pinch. (laughs) Pinch is the right word.
0: Um, Thanks to you guys for having me on, because I've been uh, looking forward to talking about some of these, and... Hopefully, I'll be able to uh, talk about the washing machine sometime soon, and I've yeah. got some thoughts on that.
2: movie. That will be a very interesting
0: discussion. <laughs> that will be a very interesting least. discussion with everybody. Yeah. I I think Sanders may want to uh, force his way onto the show so that he can complain about it. But <laughs> yeah. Well, once he see yeah, keep,
2: <laughs> Creeps really good at convincing you that you should reevaluate the stuff that you didn't like. This is true. But Sanders
0: should write in and tell us what he doesn't like about this movie because he's been so vocal about it on the group, I think.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he said he hated it a couple of times.
0: He put put this on his list of the most disappointing jolly he has ever watched, and this movie is deep on so many levels. I have come (laughs) up with at least three different layers of artistic meaning behind this, and I'm sure that Ruggiero had one of them in mind, or at least would say so after I told him about it.
2: Right. He, he would agree with you on at least one. Yeah. That's funny. I,
0: one thing I didn't mention is that I have a knack for taking... I have taken Black Roses, if you are familiar with that heavy metal horror film, and I have turned that into deep, meaningful art in order, I have been able, I have an ongoing feud with my art history professor from college, he doesn't know about it, but he said that in order to be art, something has to deliver a deep emotional meaning, and then he sent us off to look at an art exhibit that had, where some of the art was an ancient Peruvian water pot that had an otter on top. And it's like, what's Where's the deep meaning emo- And he wants us to talk about the deep emotional meaning. I'm thinking, otters are cute. Right. That's otters, pretty emotional. It's like, otters are selling this year. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> and so I have great. since come, I call it the art of bull school. If you squint at anything hard enough and bullshit your way through it, you can turn anything into high art.
2: <laughs> right. And the washing
0: machine proves that.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And I can't wait to um, to hear everybody's discussion about that, So that's going to be fun. That will be interesting, yes. <laughs> yep. So uh once again, everybody, uh go to jollochowchow.com if you're looking for archives of the podcast. Um, go to iTunes or Stitcher uh if you want to get it from there. Give us a review uh on iTunes if you can. We always love those. Uh obviously check out JalloScore.com, which is my website. Uh anything you want to plug, Jason?
0: Uh not yet. My my old podcast is off the air and I have not finished writing the other stuff yet.
2: So, not yet. Uh, all right, but we will uh throw you in there as soon as we have something to plug for you. And uh, um, I'm sure I will spam the group and make you guys hate me. <laughs> <laughs> um that could never happen. Um and three album uh three albums a week. Don't forget about three oh, albums yes. a week, my blog uh on music which is not Jala related at all except in the rare occasion when one of the Jala soundtracks shows up in my playlist. So um that's it guys. Thanks for listening and we will see you next time and we always end with ciao ciao. Ciao ciao.